Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Thank you, everybody, once again, for joining me here tonight on Golf Talk Live. And in just a moment, I'm going to bring up the panel. But uh, first, uh, just a couple of quick uh, um, mentions. I, I want to uh, let everybody know that next week, uh, beginning, of course, uh, July 15th, uh, I'm going to be, yours truly is going to be on holiday for a week. Uh, so I'm not going to be doing a show on the Tuesday morning show, Women of Golf, with uh, Cindy and myself. We're not going to have that. And also Golf Talk Live and, of course, Coach's Corner next week. Uh, none of those shows are going to be uh, broadcast next week as I'll be on vacation, but they will uh, return the following week. Uh, so uh, you can listen to some of the archived uh earlier uh, recorded programs if you want uh, next week just to catch up on some maybe you've missed. Um, but I want to thank everybody for joining me uh, live here, as I said, uh, this Thursday. We've got a great show for you tonight. We've got a couple of uh, great uh, professionals here on the Coach's Corner panel. I'm going to bring them out in a second. And a little bit later on, i got a very uh, interesting special guest, uh, Robert Price. He's the Director of Mental Performance Training and owner of Elite Minds LLC. He's going to be joining me here. We're going to talk a little bit about the mental game uh, and how uh, – really sort of follows into what we're going to be talking about tonight here on the Coach's Corner panel, so I'll save that for a little bit later. But uh, in the meantime, let me thank, uh, of course, uh, once again, the sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel, golfswing.com. Uh, they'll be sponsoring the Coach's Corner panel uh, segment again this season on here on Golf Talk Live. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about them and a, a great uh, offer that they're uh, doing right now for all of the Golf Talk Live listeners. Uh, golfswing.com, with its cutting-edge technology, have teamed up alongside some of the best golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. Together, they have created one of the best video, teaching, and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. In addition to sponsoring the Coach's Corner segment, every week I'm going to post a different golf instructional video tip featuring uh, one of their top instructors. Uh, so join today, watch, practice, and improve your game, and be sure to enter, enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE and get 50% off the regular subscription price. Um, all right, I'm going to bring up the panel here in just a second. Uh, let me quick uh, introduction for them first. Uh, first up, of course, is John Hughes. He's a PGA Master Professional and the President of North Florida PGA Section. He's also the uh, recipient of the 2013 uh, PGA of America Horton Smith Award, and he's also a top 30 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, also uh, rounding up the panel tonight is Pete Buchanan. He's the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf LLC, which of course houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace, and he as well has been teaching over the past 30-plus years. Guys, welcome to Coach's Corner. <coughs> Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Good to be Ted. here. All right, I appreciate it, guys. All right, I sort of dropped a little hint. We're going to be talking about something here tonight on Coach's Corner, and then uh, coincidentally we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, or at least I am, with my special guest Robert uh, Price a little bit later on uh, in the guest interview section. Um, we're going to talk about here on Coach's Corner tonight identifying a champion and helping, reach, uh, helping them reach their potential. So 
what I first want to do before we get into the uh, uh, the meat of the discussion, if you will, I want to get from from both of you what you perceive or what you believe uh, qualifies as a champion. And of course, I'm talking about uh, golf here. Um, so, uh, Pete, I'm going to start with you tonight, uh, just for something different, and then John, give me your views or thoughts on what you perceive a champion to be. Well, that's a sort of a loaded question a little bit. Uh, it's, it's kind of broad, but, you know, to me, um, you know, I, I think a, a champion is, is somebody who's very well-rounded, um, someone who has a, a good head on their shoulders, um, can can handle any situations, um, eager to work, um, you know, really wants to be there, has bought into – you know, what's going on around them, not only from golf instruction, but everything else. And, and basically it's just a person that's, that's really eager to, to take advantage of the opportunities they've been given and, you know, really put forth the effort and the work to, to get themselves to where not only they want to go, but where us as coaches believe they can go. So, you know, it's, it's, um, I've met a lot of kids that, you know, are close, but in some way or form, you know, they don't either, they don't, they don't buy into the whole system or they just don't have, you know, the work ethic. So they, they get close, but they can't get all the way there. But I think it's really a, a total package is, it's really looking at, you know, champions overall and, and really just be a, a, a very well-rounded person as well as a golfer. Right. Well said. And uh, as we unpack this uh, coach's corner, I think you're going to find, uh, Pete, that uh, a lot of the things that you just said are going to be in our discussion tonight. John, what about you? I know you probably concur with a lot of what Pete said, um, but what are your thoughts? Who, uh, in your mind, qualifies as a champion? I, I concur with Pete. Uh, it's, I've been around a lot of champions throughout my life with golf and other sports, and there are some characteristics that most champions have that the wannabes don't, and I'm going to say it a little bit different than Pete did. They want the ball when it counts. They want to be there as the clock is ticking down. They want to make that last shot. They want to make that last putt. They, the pressure that they practice under is superfluous to anybody else that may, they, that may surround a champion. Their work ethic is much different. Uh, their outlook on not only the sport they're in, but their life in general is much, much different. Uh, it's, it's not only organized, it's very driven. It's very uh, productive, not only to the means of the end of winning the championship, but propelling them beyond the norm. Uh, Average is not good enough for them. Above average isn't good enough for them. Top 5% is not good enough for them. It's, it's beyond being the 1%, and they're doing everything possible every day, almost every waking minute, to achieve that top percentage. Uh, and they're never – the other thing that, to me, that marks the champion, the ones that I've really enjoyed being around – is they're willing to pull you along and take you for the ride with them. Uh, the ones that sort of push you behind, give you the Heisman, and always give you the Heisman, 
those typically are not the true champions. When they fall, they take a massive fall. Uh, the ones that pull you along, you would not only enjoy the ride, you get to see the inner workings of the champion and what they do, the little details that set them apart. And when their time as champions are done, no one ever doubts it because they find a way, uh, whether organically or not, to maintain that level of consistency. Right. Well said. Um, you're, you're both uh, exactly spot on um, with a lot of your, the points that you, you both made. Um, I'm going to, again, as I said, I'm going to unpack it a little bit here, and we're going to talk about these specific things. I'm going to give you four uh, key factors uh, really to look for in a champion, and this is not just for uh, golf instructors that may be tuning into the program, for, but for even um, parents or, or you know, siblings and that, that uh, things that, that you want to identify uh, in a champion, and I, I'm gonna. There's about four of them here. There's obviously, I'm sure, more of them, but these are four that I've clearly identified that I feel that if you uh, look at some of the champions that are out there, and I'll name a few uh, in golf over the years, uh, you'll see a lot of these characteristics. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, most notably, uh, even Jack Nicklaus, in, in many ways, um, and, and and some of the other great champions over the over the years, and, and some of the key factors are are the following. Uh, easily adapts to change. Um, champions are good at all parts of their game. Um, strong commitment to practice, willingness, uh, or sacrifice to put in time uh, to achieve their goals, and a mental game that can overcome extreme challenges. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about each of these guys. And John, I'm going to go with you first. Um, and and I wanted, the reason I wanted to mention them, because I think these are important factors that clearly set a champion apart from just a good golfer. Um, good uh, golfers certainly uh, will make change and things like that, but I think a champion golfer um, will make the necessary change and adapt to those changes um, when it's critical in, in their game, and I think that's why they're continually evolving. So is that an important step, do you think, for a champion to be able to adapt to those changes as they may come? I like the term you use, Ted, evolve or, or evolution. All champions evolve. Uh, when you look at the career of a Tiger Woods and you go back to when he's on Mike Douglas and what he did then and, and the characteristics of leadership that he showed then, not only of himself, but uh, of how he was going to get things done. Um that evolved over the years, and I think over the past couple of years, you've seen another evolution of Tiger. Uh, he's getting a little older. There's been some obvious public things out there, and he's learned to adapt. He's, he's learned to become comfortable within his own skin, for lack of a better way of saying it. And I think you see that amongst any champion, whether it's a Wayne Gretzky, uh, uh, a Bill Russell, who was recently uh, mentioned right. at the ESPYs last night, uh, 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 a Lou Gehrig. I mean, it, there, there's so many names you can go down the list as you look at their careers, as you look at what they do, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally, a champion does evolve. And when it comes to change, whether forced or by choice, they do readily adapt 
because they know without being readily adaptable to change, it's the end of their run. It's, it's the end of their, their ability to be on top. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and some great uh, other um, individuals that you mentioned there as well, obviously not in golf, but nevertheless were champions in their own right. Um, Pete, something else too, that the, the second point that I mentioned that I want you to talk a little bit about is about the actual parts of their game. Uh, champions are good at all parts of their game. Uh, there certainly might be parts that they excel a little bit more. Uh, most players have uh, a strong part of their game. It might be driving, it might be chipping, it might be putting. Uh, but champions tend to be well-rounded in all aspects of their game. That doesn't mean that they still may not uh, have an area of their game that they excel a little bit more in, but generally as a, a rule, they're good at all parts of their game, and that's why they're able to close the deal come Sunday. Nicholas is a great example of that. He wasn't the strongest wedge player, but his wedge play was good enough to get the job done when it needed to, and that's why he went on to win as many major championships. So talk a little bit about that as well. Um, again, a little bit maybe the differences in that and why champions, uh, how they're able to be that much better at their game. Well, I think overall, champions don't have any weaknesses. Now, as you said, they may have a part of their game that's not up to speed to to another part, but relative to everybody else, it's so far above and beyond. And so even their weakest part is equal to some of the best parts of the other players. And so without any weaknesses, right. they don't have any, any hurdles in front of them. They can just go. You know, Seve was a great example of that. I mean, he just he wasn't weak anywhere. I mean, yeah, they might say he didn't drive it as good as he, he should have, but he drove it with, you know, uh, authority because he knew the rest of it was so strong. He didn't, it didn't really matter. I mean, he could really drive the ball very well. And, you know, they all can hit it crooked at times, but to have all of the elements of the game that highly, you know, elevated or, or you know, together as a whole, it just gives them such a, a huge benefit that they can – you know, they can really take it to everybody else because they know they're going to be able to perform. And and that's really the thing that, you know, I've, I've tried to emphasize and I've got a couple of guys that are trying to get to the next level. And, you know, they're always talking about, well, my weak area. And I'm like, well, it's really not a weak area. I said, the problem is you think it's a weak area. And as long as you do, you're always going to set yourself backwards a little bit. You got to just go right over the top of that. Right. I mean, you've gotten to this level, so you're pretty good. And so you have to be able to, to take that and, and have the confidence in all of that. Obviously you ever, you want people to play to their strengths, but when you look at a champion, everything's strong. So, I mean, they just play. So they really don't have to worry about right. a, a part of the game um, that, you know, makes you go. And even some of them, even if they do have a weakness where they're, they're really good at eliminating it. So they don't have to use it. You know, for example, if you've got like Nicholas, you know, a weak wedge player, well, he just doesn't lead himself those. You know, he'll hit an iron off the tee right. so he doesn't have to deal with it. And so, you know, recognizing right. the fact that you can you can play a game where you can you can take what might be perceived as the weakest part of your game and eliminate it, yeah, it, uh, that's really where the, the champions sit in. And, you know, again, you take a guy like Michael Jordan. I mean, wh where was the weakness? He didn't have any. There was right. none. Right. You know? And so when you yeah. have that much confidence in your overall game, you can just you can just go and you can just play. Right, and that's a valid point, um, Pete, that you bring up because you know even even Tiger, uh, you know, talked about 
uh, and Jack did as well about certain things that would they would be challenged with. Jack, I remember, was not a, a strong drawer of the ball. Obviously, he, he predominantly uh, favored a fade. Um, so when he played courses that didn't fit his eye, um, you know, he didn't just sort of mull around, do the best that he could. He eliminated on those holes he knew he was not going to make a strong score. So he didn't try to, other than just maybe just make a par, and if something fell in, great. Um, but he didn't try anything fancy uh, or different. He played to his strengths all along uh, the way, and he eliminated the weaker areas or the weaker parts of the course that he knew he was not going to be strong in. And, uh, you know, many uh, champions do that. John, another thing, too, is, and this is, uh, I think, uh, this is a huge one, I think, really, one of the, one of the most important, uh, certainly not the important, but most important, is a, a strong commitment to practice and also a willingness and ability to sacrifice to put in that time if you want to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, again, uh, champions practice a lot different than our average uh, everyday ha- high handicappers. They do, and it's a great segue from what you were just talking about. The thing I was going to add to Pete's comment about weakness is they never let their weaknesses show outwardly from a competitive standpoint of view. You'd have no clue that what they were doing was a weakness, and that does fall in and, and transgress into what they practice. They they know how to maintain their games, but they know how to build their games. They know how that if it's truly going to be a career-long weakness, they're going to identify smaller parts of that weakness that maybe they're better at, and that's what they're going to try to do when forced into that weakness. But at the same time, because they're practicing and you're standing on the side going, wow, that guy, man, he hits a lot of balls, or wow, that girl, just she doesn't go home until it's dark 30. Why, why is she doing that? That's all part of the mystique, all part of the perception that a champion's trying to provide, and I'm using that term distinctly, provide <clears throat> their competitors. They're not trying to, to do anything or prove anything so much as they're trying to provide a, a nonverbal <clears throat> communication to their competitors that I'm going to outwork you, I'm going to outthink you, I'm gonna outplay you, and I'm gonna do. I'm gonna outdo you at everything, and I have no weaknesses. Uh, and and that's what practice does, not only from a physical standpoint of view, but from a competitive perceptual standpoint of view. Think about any champion. Uh, as we were talking about Michael Jordan, what weaknesses did, did he have? If you were to ask him, I bet right. you could list three or four, but he never gave it away while he was competing. But those were the things, if you were in the back of the gym with him after practice, those were the things that he was working on hard. Uh, when you go to mm-hmm. PGA or LPGA tour stops, the people who are there after their rounds, the people who are there and they're telling them to turn the floodlights on because they're not done. Uh, those are the champions. Hogan stands out. A, a story told to me by a lot of people who witnessed this firsthand was Hogan asking people in, in the pub to turn their car lights on onto the green because he wasn't done putting. And he bought a, everybody in the pub a beer. And that's what was the perception. Hey, I'm going to outwork you, but I'm going to pay you to outwork you. And the guy ends up right. winning 
how many tournaments? I mean, that's that's a really good example of that. Yeah, and and you know something else too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, guys. You know, just talking about and and, and I'm. I know there are other champions out there, but the reason I'm talking about these two specific because there are differences, but at the same time, there's similarities. You know, Nicholas and Tiger, for instance, when you look back uh, on earlier times in, in Nicholas's career, you know, uh, he was certainly not an overly tall uh, individual compared to some of the players that you see out there today, um, but he was a very powerful man. He had a lot of strength in his youth, and he was able to hit that ball a mile. Um, fast forward to Tiger's era, and of course, let me digress a little bit you know nicholas was able to dominate for a you know a period of time uh in his day obviously there were a lot of other great players but because of his his physical prowess if you will at that time uh and his ability to hit uh shots uh that were just you know at that time almost seemed ungodly and he also had a mental prowess which we're going to talk about in a second um that also was able to overpower a lot of the, the competitors. Um, and when you fast forward to Tiger, um, you know, it was a little bit of a culture shock to a lot of folks out in the golf uh, world, if you will, because when he came out, you know, he was kind of a gangly, uh, you know, tall kid, not really overly powerful, um, but could maneuver his way around the golf course. And what was interesting, uh, you know, a few years afterwards, after he made his debut in 97, you know, he started really hitting the, the gym and, and really started working out. And all of a sudden, now you've got this young man who's come out who's, you know, really well-built. He's strong. He's, uh, you know, just uh, an, an athlete now. It's no longer just a golfer. He's an athlete. Um, and he was able to overpower many, many courses. In fact, I can think of a number, including Augusta National, that had to lengthen uh, the golf course just to be able to handle players uh, like Tiger Woods because he was just out driving uh, most of the holes. So, you know, there's obviously changes from, from Nicholas's day to, to Tiger's day, but again, that's what made a champion. And, and a lot of people that were following, uh, watching the PGA Tour at that time when Tiger came out were in awe of him because he just dominated for such a long period of time. Uh, and he was able to overshadow and overpower uh, a lot of the folks. Um, Pete, I want to come back to you on, on this next one here. Uh, and, and this, I, I believe, is, is probably one of the most important, and that is the mental game. Um, a champion, in my opinion, is able to overcome extreme challenges. Um, we've seen it, a good, quick example. Um, you know, we see with Tiger a lot of times, again, earlier on in his career, he was driving the ball left and right uh, all over the place at times and would find himself in what would seem like an awful jam. But he was able to, with his mental game, was able to get out of some of those extreme challenges and extreme positions. Talk about that part of the game a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, Pete, on how that really dictates the difference, again, between a champion and just your everyday player. Well, you know, you mentioned the two guys, Nicholas and Tiger. Nobody in golf except those two prepared themselves better to play than those two. They got themselves, they knew the course, they prepared on the course, they knew every hole, every shot they were going to try to do, and these guys came to take the golf course apart. And mentally, that's what they did. They prepared themselves so well for what they were going to be up against. Uh, And so they knew the situations that could arise. And when you get into those spots where you have to overcome a challenge, um, you know, they've prepared for those. They know what's coming, and they can get themselves out of them. 
Um, you know, I heard Tiger once say, he says, you're never out of it, ever. You're never out of it. And, you know, a lot of guys, you know, right. they, they three-putt the first two holes, and it's like, oh, here we go again. And, you know, they're, you may as well just, you know, tell the caddy, sorry, you're not making any money this week. I'm going home. Because you've just given up. And I see so many of these young guys that give up so quickly when, you know, Tiger's like, so I made two bogeys, big deal. I got 16 holes left. Here we go. I know exactly right. how I'm going to make this up. And I think those two players, and, you know, you could throw Hogan in there. Um, you know, Snead, I don't know enough about Sam Snead. He was just so talented that I think, you know, he didn't have to prepare himself mentally. He was just so good, you know, a, a talented individual. He could just make it happen. But, you know, I, I haven't read enough, you know, about his mental prepared game. But I think Hogan and Nicholas and, and Tiger, those three just – you know, they, they just got themselves so well prepared for what they were going to do that there was, you know, there really weren't any challenges in their mind when they started, you know, so they were better to adapt right. to the few that might come up because they were so well prepared to go play. I mean, Firestone, look at Tiger's record at Firestone. I mean, good grief. You know, the key just tore that place apart, but he just knew exactly what he wanted to do. And you see these guys, you know, they're playing in a tournament the week before a major and they're hitting squirrely shots on the, on a tournament. And they say, well, what were you doing on 14? He says, well, I'm going to have that shot next week at Augusta. So I was practicing it. <laughs> you know, and these guys, yep. they do that, you know, they're going to, they're, and as John said, they're going to outwork you. But I think Tiger and Jack mentally prepared themselves better than any players that have ever, ever gotten into the game. And it just showed Tiger came out and, you know, I love that interview with Curtis, Curtis Strange when he first started off and Tiger said, well, I came out here to win. And he goes, well, you'll learn, you know, and kind of chuckles. Right. And <laughs> Tiger goes on and just right. obliviates the field, you know, so, but right. it's that type of mentality and preparedness. I think that those guys were just a step above and beyond uh, everybody else. And so, yeah, everybody else is playing for second because those guys were better prepared. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times that, that confidence that comes with, the champion often gets um, confused with arrogance. You know, it really isn't an arrogance. Um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, I, I remember our cockiness. I remember when Tiger, you just point out when he had that interview with Curtis Strange, and, you know, a lot of people perceived him at that time. I remember he received a lot of negative media coverage uh, in addition to, to the positive because of that. People thought he was, you know, coming out, and here's this young kid. As I said, he was kind of scrawny at the time. Um, and, you know, they thought he was very cocky and very arrogant and hadn't really proven himself. And then he comes up and just, you know, like a, a, a bunt cake whips the fields, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, he, he, he just dominated for, for a number of years and people were literally in awe. And it wasn't until everybody else elevated their game that they were able to beat him. Uh, you right. know, there was no magic elixir, if you will, or, a magic pill that you could take. They had to elevate their game. They had to bring their game up right. to Tiger, and uh, and that yeah, was really when they first started to. Right, exactly. I mean, I can remember him. I think it was at the Buick Open uh, several years back. Um, again, when he was still in in, uh, in in good playing condition. Not that he's not now, but you know what I mean. And you know, he hit a, a, an errant tee shot, and uh, he was in behind some trees, and he pulled it. I believe it was a six iron. And he just carved that thing around the trees, and it landed, you know, about 10 feet from the hole. And it was a, you know, thick, gnarly, rough, and just not a good lie and the whole bit. And, I mean, 
you know, he just bent that ball like you wouldn't believe and, and it, you know, hit on the uh, green and, and, you know, got up there, like I said, about 10 feet, I think it was. I mean, that was unheard of. Not a, a lot of players were able to do that. And he, you know, he got through that rough uh, and uh, with, with almost like going through butter. So, uh, again, you're right. I, I think the mental preparedness of a lot of these guys. And the other thing, too, is I think if you really look at their mental preparation, it was not just so much about playing, but how and where they played. They were very particular about the tournaments they played in. They knew what courses um, played to their strengths, and they avoided tournaments. Uh, obviously, they can't play every single week, uh, a lot of these guys, because it's just a, a pretty hectic schedule. But, you know, they picked and choose. Obviously, Nicholas went for a lot of the majors. Um, he was going to be in there, um, and he was certainly going to play in some of the tournaments leading up to it. But there were a lot of other tournaments that he did not play in uh, just because I, they didn't suit his eye, perhaps, or he just didn't feel that he was going to benefit uh, from playing that week. He didn't play just for the sake of playing. Uh, he had a purpose, and that goes back to commitment to practice and so forth as well, uh, and learning and, and willingness to sacrifice to put in the time to, to achieve the goals. When you've got a goal in mind, you've got to make those sacrifices. Um, I want to, John, uh, as we sort of go into the next uh, phase of things, we're going to talk a little bit now about steps that we as coaches, uh, obviously we have the opportunity to work with some, uh, maybe some juniors uh, or what have you, uh, and helping your champion. So obviously you, you identify somebody that you feel has some of those uh, key qualities, key factors that we've been talking about. Um, and, and, John, now we want to help them reach, you know, his or her goals. So first and foremost, sort of piggybacking onto the mental side of things, what can we do to help our champion strengthen their mental game? I think the, the first and foremost thing is limiting distractions. Uh, a lot of really talented, very skillful players get distracted uh, for a lot of times the right reasons, whether it's a family commitment or priority or something faith-based or what have you. But when you look at John, Tiger, uh, Hogan, some of the other names that we've talked about, their distraction levels were zero. Uh, so much so you could argue that they knew how to turn it on and when to turn it off, whether it was the work ethic, the mental preparedness, whatever the case may be. They compartmentalize their distractions into time frames, into balanced portions of their life. So they could handle those things, whether it's children, uh, friends, social engagements, chores around the house, school, uh, we can keep going and going and going. Mm. But each one of those things I listed can be argued as a distraction to a champion. Great champions know how to budget their time. And as a coach, you've got to be able to uh, not necessarily consistently remind a champion of their being distracted so much as hint to them that maybe they're thinking of something or maybe they're concentrating on something or maybe they're dwelling on something disproportionate, which becomes a distraction. Maybe they're forgetting what's staring them in the face, uh, whether it's their skills and their strengths or a resource they have just totally forgotten about. Uh, so that's probably the first thing I will do when when I identify a champion, when, I de when a champion identifies 
him or herself to me, uh, which is another point that we could get into. Uh, I'm very right off the bat, hey, let's make sure we're budgeting things correctly so the distractions are few and far between. Yeah, those are those are some great points, John. You're exactly right. You know, I think it's all, you know, there's so many things really in, in building a, a champion, if you will, from their side and also from our side. You know, quite often we, we see a lot of really good players, as I, I think one of you touched on earlier. You know, we see a lot of really good players out there that have got some skill and some talent, but they don't necessarily have all of the key components of becoming a champion. They might certainly win tournaments. We've seen a lot of players like that on the PGA and LPGA Tour. You know, they certainly win some events, but they don't really stand out. Uh, and it's not, you know, necessarily, uh, certainly personality sometimes can have something to do with it. Um, but a lot of times it's just, you know, they're a good, strong player, but they're just not a, a champion, if you will. Um, certainly in the moment when they win their event, they feel like one, but they're near, not really to the caliber that we've been talking about here tonight. So, Peter, you know, there's a physical side of things as well, not just the physical fitness side, but also the physical side uh, of the game. Uh, you know, again, we talked about all, all parts of the game. So what are some key things that do you think as a coach that you want to work with? You, you've identified a champion in, in your midst, uh, you know, male or female, doesn't really matter. Um, talk a little bit about the physical side of things. What are you going to focus on? Because if, and I want to preface this for just a second. You know, when you look at, again, Tiger is an example. I mean, he worked with a number of, you know, top coaches in the business. Uh, I guarantee there was really nothing that any of those coaches could have told Tiger about the golf game um, that he didn't already know. But there was something that they had that he needed. So what do you think a champion needs from their coach? Uh, certainly they're hitting and striking the ball well or they wouldn't get to the level they are. But what do you think that they draw from on the physical side from a coach? I think, first of all, it's confidence in the coach. I mean, somebody who, you know, doesn't waver in what they tell them, somebody who, who you know, stands their ground, um, tells them straight up how it is, you know, this is the way it needs to be, this is what you need to do, um, track each area of their game so you can you can pinpoint to them, you know, these are the areas that you need to get a little bit stronger in, not that you're, you know, not – strong as is but you have to get stronger to get to where you want to go and I, I think as a as an overall basis um, I, it's a two-way street I mean the, the player you know champions to a certain extent um, you know the true champions just have a god-given talent that's in there and it's always going to help them be a step above everybody else but I think as coaches we also have to be careful that we don't teach that out of them because you can really do that. I mean, I've seen a lot of times you get a great talented kid and they coach the talent right out of them. And, you know, you can, yep. you got to be careful that you don't take it the other way, but you, you have to be a little bit forceful. And, and, you know, I, I tell my players too, I said, look, you've come to me for help. And, and I can tell you one thing, I'm not going to back down. You can, you can do whatever you want to do, but I'm not backing down because I know what it takes to get you to where you need to go. And so you, you sort of have to, as a coach, have to get, get that confidence in yourself and get that confidence into them that they know that you can take them where you want to go. I mean, you know, Tiger and Butch, I mean, Tiger knew a lot about what was going on, but Butch just knew how to, how to finesse him enough to get him to do the mm -hmm. things he wanted him to do. It wasn't going to change a lot, but 
but Butch right. was able to get Tiger to understand what Tiger needed to do. And I think that's where the real challenge comes into play is, is getting the players to recognize what they need to do. Because a lot of times these young kids just think, well, I, you know, I, I want a couple of tournaments. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the berries now, but not, not yet. Cause you're going to go up against guys that right. have all the berries and you know, you got to go try to get them away from them. And so you have to be able to, to get them in a way to understand what they need to do in the most positive way and get them to recognize not only what they need to work on, but how to work on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a big difference there. They have to understand, you know, cause and effect. They have to understand, you know, what's going on. And I love what John was talking about with distractions because there's so many kids today. I mean, they have a distraction in their pocket. I mean, that thing can distract them mm-hmm. for, for no end. I mean, you you know, and I always tell them when they come to me, give me your phone. What do you mean? Give it to me. I'm going to put it over here until we're done. You know, I don't want you, I don't want you getting distracted. We got something we got to work on here. So it can be something as simple as that. But I think more than anything else, as a coach with a champion, um, you have to have confidence in them, but they also have to have confidence in you. If they don't, it's not going to work. They have to know 100% and they have to buy into what you're doing. And that's when you can really bring them to a, a huge uh, a level and really get them going. Yeah, well said, Pete. You know, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, I think that sometimes as golf professionals, you know, slash coach, I think that we focus too much on what we would like to see and not really sometimes, uh, and, and it's well-intended, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, but what might be in the best interest of the student. And we can literally coach the good right out of them. I mean, I've seen players, as, as you both have pointed out, that were you know, good, strong players and had a lot of potential to, to get to that next level. And you know, they get in the wrong hands, and suddenly you know, they're, they're like a novice golfer by the time they're done. And I think sometimes, pardon me, you know, we have to get our egos out of the way and remember what we're really there for. And we're there really as a support. We're there for um, a, a to provide visual cues, and visual feedback, um, and guidance, uh, especially for young junior players who maybe don't have quite the mental prowess quite yet. Uh, they might have a strong physical game, but they may not have quite the mental prowess, and they need to to train their brain, if you will, uh, on handling different situations that they may be faced with, and how to overcome adversities on the golf course. So there's a lot of things. Um, as a coach that we can do to help them, but sometimes we have to get out of their way uh, and, and let them get out there. And sometimes even just through trial and error, letting them see, uh, you know, letting them fail a little bit uh, sometimes is a good thing because that's how they learn. If we're always, you know, certainly we have to be there and be, uh, you know, to a certain degree a pillar of strength, but I think we also have to be uh, willing to, to let them stumble a little bit too so they know how to uh, overcome some of those adversities. Um, John, another one too is, uh, that I want to ask you is, does having a, a player with perseverance help? I'm going to tell a quick story without throwing anybody under mm-hmm. the bus, but I, I, I worked okay. for a particular academy where we as coaches <clears throat> were challenged to motivate our players. And the way that discussion was handled, I took issue with and stood up and asked this academy owner to find more motivated 
players that we can coach who were willing to deal with adversity. Uh, it got me fired about a year later, but I stand by that. <laughs> um, the, right. the perseverance uh, is one of those smaller characteristics that every great champion of industry, of politics, of entertainment, of sports. I mean, I can just keep going down the list. It's probably the one ingredient that every champion has that goes beyond measurement is the best way to put it. Um, It goes back to the work ethic, but it's not only on the course, it's off the course. You're willing to deal with adversity in ways that are creative, that are productive, and ultimately answer the question, why? Uh, To sort of climb on board with what uh, Pete was saying, as coaches, we have to be able to direct, steer, guide is a term you used, all the athletes Mm -hmm. that we coach to understand the why reason they're doing something because when a when a true champion understands why perseverance Mm -hmm. is the byproduct um right it's not enough to say we got to change your swing plane or or a great example would be faldo and ledbetter i've had this discussion with david he he's a decent friend of mine and, and that was one of the things he had to do with faldo uh, even though Faldo came to him having won a major and saying, hey, I don't think I can play consistent golf this way, David had to sit down and tell him why what they were going to do was going to be able to facilitate the consistency and the performance level that Faldo wanted. And in turn, there, there's numerous stories of Faldo's work ethic during his heyday. It was all because yep. David was able to provide the why reason. And that perseverance is the byproduct of that. I, I think when it comes to perseverance, name a champion that doesn't have one, and I'll name you uh, a one-and-done champion. The, the, the ones right. who are there, who are perennial, who are household names, every one of them have perseverance. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right, uh, you know, John. And, and as it was mentioned earlier, you know, again, using Tiger as an example, um, and I think, Pete, you were the one that might have said this, or, and if it was you, John, I apologize. Um, but, you know, if they have a, a bad hole or two starting their round, they don't give up. You know, it's, it's not over. They still have got, as you said, 16 uh, more holes left. And that's really the difference as well, I think, um, and that falls into that perseverance, is they know that they're still, as long as they still have one more putt or one more shot in the bag, there's still an opportunity to advance. And a lot of our high handicappers particularly get into that trap of when they start struggling or having difficulty out in the golf course, they, that's it. They're done. They they give up. They just go through the motion. They'll hit a shot and whatever, but their heart, their mind, their soul is no longer in it. A champion never 
falls into that category. And if they do, then there's usually some form or some type of anxiety that has now gotten in there. And I think that's probably, if you were to examine, and I'm certainly not an expert, so I don't want to have anybody emailing me or something say, well, you're not a, a doctor or what have you. But if I was to hazard a guess, I think that back, uh, back a little bit uh, ago in Tiger's career, when a lot of uh, personal things started happening, I think that's what really happened. I mean, you don't just go from you know uh, a champion one day to you know the wheels falling off the bus the next day. That was a whole different uh, kettle of fish, and I think some anxiety and stress and of the situation that was going on at that particular time creeped in. But this is what happens with a lot of our amateur golfers that get out on the golf course. And this is where we as coaches and, and teach professionals have to be able to, um, you know, guide and steer, as, as we've mentioned here tonight. The difference with, I think, the, the amateur golfer and the champion is the amateur golfers, you have to um, for, force them almost into a direction. The champions know that they have to go in that direction. They just need reassurance that it's the right direction for them. Um, so they're a lot easier. It's kind of like taking a horse to a water. Um, they're a little easier to, to get to that position. And I think that's something that, um, you know, really differentiates, I think, the two uh, is that uh, aspect. Um, and perseverance, as you pointed out, John, is a big thing. Um, I'm going to give you guys just a, a minute or two if there's any other thoughts or points that you want to make um, in, in uh Helping a, a champion reach their uh, their potential. Pete, I'm going to let you go first, then John. Well, I think first and foremost, I I think it's to me it always has to be. I always call it the a little bit of a crowd mentality. You have to surround yourself with people who are going to give you the opportunity to get to go where you want to go. And if there are those people in that little crowd or in that circle that are uh, a negative aspect you, you got to figure out how to eliminate that and and i've seen yeah. that many many times where i've you know we're, we've got a team surrounded we're really really moving along and there's there's one thorn in the circle and that thorn usually is the loudest voice and it can really derail mm-hmm. one of these young kids or one of these champions and and it can really take them sideways so you have to be able you talk about perseverance you have to be able to to understand how and why that particular person is not allowing you to get to where you want to go. So I think from an overall standpoint, I always, I always like to look to see, you know, who's around them and, and who's helping them. And, and, you know, honestly, you know, if, if we're going to be straight up, a lot of times it's the parents. Um, and yep. there's a, there's a, there's an LPGA, person out there i'm not going to say a name but everybody knows who it is as a youngster was phenomenal and now can't even play anymore and it's one of the saddest stories i think that's ever been the the talent was totally coached out of her and i don't think it was the 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 coaches as much as it was the parents and so you can you can have an atmosphere that can be totally destructive and so you really have to you know if you really want to make this happen you have to have people around you that's going to allow you to do what you want to do. And, um, you know, it's as hard as it is sometimes, it, some of those may have to be eliminated. Yeah. And, and, and you're exactly right, Pete. 
you know, I think having a good, strong support system, it's not, you know, there's a lot of other key, especially in, in, in this day and age with the level of champions that we have. And, you know, even in golf, I mean, it's almost like an entourage and, and you have to have, you know, you've got your, your swing coaches and then you've got your physical fitness trainers and, um, you know, nutritional uh, advisors and things like that. And, and, and other uh, people that may be supporting you as well. And then, of course, you know, if you're a junior and that, you've got parents. Um, it's so crucial to have a good support system. And if you've got a negative uh, um, thorn, if you will, as you put it, uh, in, in the bunch, um, it can derail a very promising career. And especially we've seen it, um, you know, with, with potential champions where they've just either the game is, is just coached out of them uh, or they're so disgruntled or, or disheveled with, with what's going on around them that they just – you know, lose interest. Um, John, what about yourself? What, what are some final thoughts that you might have um, as far as uh, how we can help our champions uh, reach uh, their goals? I'll sum it up in two words. I, I love having, I love being the cream in between two Oreos. So my first Oreo wafer <laughs> is ownership. When you really talk, when you really sum up everything we've spoken about, ownership is one word that describes it all. Taking ownership of your distractions and being able to compartmentalize it, taking ownership of your practice habits and your work ethic, taking ownership of the people you surround yourself with, basically taking ownership of where you want to go because ultimately you're the captain of the ship and the people you choose to put on that ship, the resources you put Mm -hmm. on that ship for you and the other people, it's all your choice. And so many times, I'm going to call it 999,999 out of a million, don't take complete ownership. That when it comes to blame, they know they're the only ones out there they can blame. But a great champion understands that, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They evolve. They learn from that mistake, and they go on. They persevere. The other wafer is fear, because what we're really talking about in a champion is they've overcome their fears. Uh, And we as coaches are there to help guide them with overcoming fears. I I talk about this a lot with uh, just the average amateur that I teach, but even the competitive players that I'm I'm very fortunate to influence and, and coach and assist, I'm always asking them, hey, what are you fearing? Uh, What's the fear factor here, and and why is it even part of this? What can we do to overcome that? What can we do not necessarily to eliminate it, but tackle it head on so it's no longer fear, it's an opportunity. Uh, And the champion sees fear as opportunity. Um, I've been mentored by so many great sports psychologists throughout the years, not only as a golf professional, but in my previous time playing professional soccer, it's, it's all about overcoming fears. And, and the champions we mentioned today, numerous different names, they learned either at some point in their career to take ownership of what they're doing and to overcome the fear of failure. Because that's ultimately mm-hmm. what it boils down to. Champions don't fear failure. Failure is an opportunity for them to grow. And I think if more people 
just took everyday life that way, we'd probably be in a much better place here on Earth. But more importantly to our discussion, more germane to our discussion, we were talking about building golf champions. They come to us. They identify themselves to us first, and they take ownership of that. It's our job as coaches, parents, support mechanisms, friends, loved ones, children, spouses. We're there to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can for that champion to understand there are no fears. There's opportunities. Right. Well said. Great way to end the segment. Thank you, uh, John, for uh, for that. Well, guys, I, again, I want to thank you very much for joining me tonight on uh, Coach's Corner. It's a very interesting discussion tonight. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think it's an area that um, doesn't get really talked about a lot uh, in, in the golfing world. We hear about champions. We hear about certain things, their mindset, um, but really some of the, the meat and potatoes, if you will, of what really goes into a champion and and um, from their perspective and also from the coach's perspective. Um, so, John and Pete, thank you very much for that. And as always, I'm going to give you uh, a moment to let the folks know if they want to reach out, what the best way to do that. Uh, Pete, I'm going to let you go first and then John. Sure. Thanks again, Ted. And, uh, John, it's always uh, great being on with you. I, I really enjoy, enjoy the discussions. So they can reach me at plainsimplegolf.com, and the plane is P-L-A-N-E. Uh, all my contact information is out there, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those things are out there. And, um, you know, if you have any questions or you, uh, about anything, you know, I've got the simple swing repeater training brace, which is, you know, really a, uh, something that's really helped a, a, a lot of golfers. So if you have any questions about anything, don't hesitate to send me a note and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you, Pete. John? Pete, always a pleasure to be on Golf Talk Live with you. I think this is the first time all year that we have been, and I was wondering when we'd finally meet up. And, and I agree, the discussions we have are they're monumental. I've, I've got some notes that I've got to take care of from this discussion. Thanks for that, Ted, again. As always, an honor and pleasure to be on the show, and I appreciate the opportunity to share and grow the game. People can reach me. It's real simple. John Hughes Golf, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, my website, uh, any social media, my email address. It's John at John Hughes Golf. Very simple uh, to to access me. I answer my phone. Nobody else answers my phone, which I'm very proud of. And, and Ted, I hope you have a great vacation next week. I'm going to be doing the same. Perfect. Well, thank you guys as always. And I can concur. John does answer his own phone, which is always an important factor. Um, guys, as always, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And his own emails too. Um, thank you very much, guys. Uh, always a pleasure uh, having you on the show, John and Pete. Uh, uh, love having you guys on and uh, have a great, uh, uh, a great uh, rest of the summer. I'll talk to you next time uh, you're on the coach's corner panel. Uh, thanks guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, John. Take care, Ted. You too, Pete. All right. That was my two uh, Coach's Corner panelists, uh, John Hughes and Pete Buchanan, and uh, they gave you their respective uh, information for contacting them. And and, uh, I strongly suggest that you reach out to either one of them or both if you want. Uh, They've got some great uh, great advice to give you and uh, can certainly help you uh, grow your game. Um, Before uh, I introduce my uh, my very special guest this evening – I want to remind everybody about the great offer through golfswing.com. Um, you can go on to, after the show, go on to golfswing.com 
and join their online video training academy. And in the meantime, here's a little bit more about tonight's sponsor, GolfSwing.com. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? GolfSwing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right, don't forget, after the show, go to GolfSwing.com and uh, sign up their, with their online video academy. Enter the promo code GOLFTALKLIVE and get 50% off the subscription price. It's a great deal for all of the Golf Talk Live listeners. All right, tonight's special guest, I'm very excited, kind of a, uh, a follow, if you will, to tonight's discussion on Coach's Corner panel. We talked about uh, really uh, not only building a champion, identifying a champion, if you will, and, uh, and some of the key factors and characteristics that one might find. And this gentleman, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that as well and some other things, but let me introduce him first, and then I'll bring him on to the show. Uh, his name is Robert Price. He's the Director of Mental Performance Training and owner of Elite Minds LLC. After 19 years of experience getting athletes to perform at their best when it matters most, uh, he can help you as well. Uh, I have created the Tour Pro's mental playbook, if you will, uh, that helps golfers decrease uh, scores by an average of three shots a round, which makes golf more enjoyable, and now golfers can turn their potential into reality. The Tour players have a team of experts, and Robert uh, has seen success of his clients as well when he's on their team. Uh, they typically help golfers right after they decide that they want a lot more out of their golf games. Uh, he, as I mentioned, is the owner of Elite Minds LLC, which is a mental performance consulting service that promotes professionals exceeding their per, uh, potential in every field of human endeavor. Uh, this is accomplished through proven mental skill techniques uh, that will lead the professional to more consistent performances, even in the face of adversity. Uh, he understands how to get the brain and body working together as a team, uh, he founded uh, Elite Minds in 2000 as a graduate student and has created successful inroads since for hundreds of clients. Uh, he's an expert applying scientific mental skills and techniques that uh, cultivate the mental and emotional strength necessary to thrive in an area of, of overwhelming demands and persistent conflict. Elite Minds has worked with a wide variety of clients in various settings, including uh, uh, many of the soldiers, NBA, uh, NFL, USL, PGA, and NCWA athletes, just to name a few. So let me bring on my very special guest tonight, Robert Price. Good evening, Robert. Welcome evening. to Golf Talk Live. Hey, Ted. How are you doing? How Good are you evening. doing? Pleasure. I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate I'm glad it. to be on the show. Well, I'm very excited to have you as well. And uh, I had to stop reading because you've got so many great accolades there. I would have taken up most of our time. So I might, I might slip a few more in here as we go along. But uh, welcome to the show, and, and I'm really excited to have you for a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously, I, I know you're going to be a great guest, and you've got a, a great um, really service, if you will, that you provide uh, to many, many uh, aspects of the professional world, not just, uh, as I mentioned, to golf, but uh, also, you've done uh, work with uh, those in the NBA and NFL and, and many other top athletes. Um, but we talked about earlier on the Coach's Corner panel, which is the segment that preceded you, uh, about really identifying a champion and, uh, and helping them as a coach to reach some of their uh, goals and dreams, if you will. Um, but before I do that and we get into some of that discussion, I want you to talk a little bit about your introduction to golf. 
<laughs> sure. Uh, my introduction to golf is actually um, probably a little different than most. Um, my lovely bride and my father-in-law, he is an avid golfer. And so upon meeting my, my, <laughs> my wife's uh, dad, he asked almost the second question, I do believe, was, do I play golf? And I was like, uh, <laughs> if I get to date your daughter, I play golf, right? So that was kind of my introduction right. to the sport was through him. Uh, I think <laughs> so from that point on, uh, he gave me some clubs. I looked at them. I didn't know how cool they were at the time until I took them to the range and started actually practicing. So uh, my first set of clubs were Titleist DCIs, and so – uh, people thought I was really good, and I had no idea why. And I now I know as I've gotten into the game a little bit more. Right, that's a very interesting uh, approach to uh, to getting into golf. You know, it, I laugh because you know you're exactly right. It is kind of an unusual introduction to golf, uh, but it was a smart choice, I'm sure, on on your part. Um, you obviously uh, are now engaged. Um, you know, Robert, you you obviously have. Um, you know, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit more. You've got a master's degree from both University of Maryland in kinesiology uh, with an emphasis in sports psychology and also John Hopkins University in clinical community counseling. So you're obviously well-educated. Um, what drew you to um, develop the programs that you're doing now? What, what sort of took an interest uh, in, in getting into sort of the athlete's mind, if you will, a little bit? Sure. Um, one of the cool things for me was actually when I was in high school, um, I tell this story to, to folks because I think, it, you know, how do you find a career or how do you find something that you're passionate about? For me, it came early. Um, literally, I was in the ninth grade. I played football. I ran track, uh, soccer, and played basketball in high school. And so um, as a football-only player and a basketball-only player, the coach at the time said, well, you need to do something in the spring. And I was like, well, I'm just going to, you know, like shoot baskets or something, you know. And I was pushed onto the golf team. And earlier, one of your guests mentioned, sometimes as an amateur, you're forced into a position. Um, and so right. for me, I was forced into running track. And I actually was left with running the 300 intermediate hurdles and the, 100, one, the 110 hurdles. And it was through that um, experience where I really started asking the question of, well, what is the mental makeup for somebody who's really good at what they do, especially in the world of sport? Um, and, and so I knew that, like, it, it became one of those things, well, why am I doing track when I want to play football? And I think what happens mm -hmm. is you start to understand is the longer that you go through that process is that, well, I want to be really good at that other sport. And so this is just an opportunity, right, for me to actually mm -hmm. improve and enhance the things that I want to improve and enhance. And so through that process, I kind of started literally kind of walking through, you know, what is a sports psychologist or what is a mental skills coach? You know, how do, how do you have mm -hmm. the, the right mindset uh, to be the champion, if that's what you want to be, or to be a really good athlete or a great athlete is really what I talk to folks about. And for me, that's really where it came from when I was in high school. This was a path that I knew that I wanted to to go down. And so I began going down that path. And now, 19 years later, I'm here uh, doing different things, but it's still uh, very much into the mindset of what makes a, a good athlete actually great. 
You know, and it's interesting that you say that, Robert, because, you know, really when you think about it, if you look back at most um, champions, whether it be in the sports or in the business world, they've all gone through uh, their own difficult challenges. They've experienced things that have sort of helped dictate the path they're going to go on. Um, you know, some uh, marriage counselors have gone through difficult marriages and have learned from those experiences and now want to sort of uh, transfer that. So, you know, it's interesting that you took a, a, an interest yourself um, in school at some of the areas that, you know, we're going to talk about here. Uh, and then now you've managed to turn that into a profession as well. So it brings me to the point I want to talk about becoming a champion, um, you know, because that word gets thrown around quite a bit. You know, we, we see it. And, and if you listen to the earlier segment, I, I mentioned that, you know, we see a lot of great players. I'm going to obviously focus on the tour, uh, the tours here for now, just because it is a golf program, but feel free to throw any other analogies of other sports if you want. Um, but, you know, in golf, we always hear, well, so-and-so won this tournament, so-and-so, so they're a champion. And they certainly are in their own right. But there is a difference when you look at people like Tiger and you look at people like Jack Nicholas and some of the other uh, true champions, in my opinion, there is a much difference. So my question to you is this. How much is God-given talent and how much is through hard work, grit, and determination? Well, it's actually a fairly easy answer to the question because if you look at the tour, any tour, literally, uh, Latin American, Corn Ferry now, Web. Mm -hmm. You look at Asian Tour, you look at McKinsey in Canada, and you look at the big show. Right. Every, I've kind of been around all those tours. Every one of those athletes can do pretty much the exact same thing. And when you're right. around that talent pool, what you hear the most is that it's between the wonderful two ears, those six inches that make and uh, separate uh, you from your peer. And I see it in junior golf and in college golf as well. And, and the cool thing that I did listen to the segment a little earlier, just so that I can make sure that I, I wanted to touch on some of those points is that the difference for me yeah. is you, people talk about the champion and when they're really just talking about a winner and there is a difference between right. who a champion is, and a winner. And I would tell people that mm -hmm. the difference literally is is someone who can perform consistently great in the face of adversity all the time, right? So that's someone who's super consistent right. at what they do in any field, but specifically in golf, you know, that's the guy that's finishing in the, I, you know, <laughs> we talk about goals a lot, and that's the guy that's literally finishing, I would say, in the top 20 most times when they tee it up. I mean, it's hard to win. We mm -hmm. know that. But that, that sure. golfer, that, that talent that's in that top 20, that's the consistently great golfer. I mean, because there's, there's hundreds of guys out there trying to make it happen. So if you're, you're constantly in that top 20, top 25 throughout a season in golf, you're a champion. Uh, and, and some of those folks might not have won as much, uh, but they're just putting themselves in position to do great things. And so uh, they're really good at what they do. They're, they're actually better, you know, than a winner. Uh, you can win once. You can maybe even win twice on tour. Uh, but to to constantly any any touring professional from from young now to old would tell you to be in the top 25 year in and year out on that tour. You, you're really making it happen, and and they would consider classify those folks as champions. Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you think in the media, um, Roberts, and I'm talking primarily the golf media. Do you think we throw that word around a little bit too much? And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, as I said, you know, Tiger, in my mind, 
is a champion. Uh, certainly he won a lot of tournaments, so you could classify him both, really. He was a winner. But he was a champion because of what you just said. You know, he was in that, well, a little higher up than the top 25, I'd say the top 10. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. he was always consistently there. And as one of my earlier guests mentioned, you know, if he had a bad hole or even a, a bad couple of holes, he didn't give up his round. That was just, okay, that's over with, done. I got to get back on what needs to get done to finish the job that I've got, you know, ahead of me or the task that I've got ahead of me. But do you think the media throws that champion uh, word around a little bit too much? Because, I, you know, we hear this all the time on the golf channel and, you know, somebody will come out, a young player will come in on a tour this season and they'll come out and they'll win a big event. And, you know, the, well, here's the next tiger or here's the next Jack. And, you know, three months later, it's like Bob who, you know right. what I mean? Like it's, it's like, who is that? They fizzle away. What are you, do you think it's just wishful thinking on the media's part or hopeful thinking or, or how do you, how do you see that? Well, fr- probably on the media side, really what their, you know, their job is to, to engage and create interest. And so when you hear that word sure. champion, your ears perk up and, um, and then we start to understand, well, who are they talking? You know, you almost go to, well, who, who are they talking about? He, him as the champion. Uh, and, and so right. that's, I think a lot of it. And, it's very unique. I mean, I talk about it in, in the, even in the mental playbook that I've created is that when a lot of people ask themselves, well, well, what is that champion mindset? And you hear it in the golf world all the time, and they never talk about how do you actually receive or get that. And so that's literally mm-hmm. what I teach folks is actually how to obtain that champion mindset because there's some very key ingredients that get, are involved in that. And I think the media themselves, they, they've attached themselves to that champion word um, and, and they just kind of, as you mentioned, just kind of throw it out there as often as they can because it does peak interest, uh, which is part of what they sure. do. So, uh, but yeah, it's absolutely right. overused. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think so as well. And and you know, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to to talk about what I did on the Coach's Corner segment earlier, um, partially because I knew you were coming on the show on the second half, so I thought this would be sort of a great segue into it, uh, into our discussion, but. You know, this is something that really, again, I think gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, we all want to feel like we're a champion at times. But the truth of the matter is they are a different breed. Um, You know, we see the dedication and the determination and the perseverance, as, you know, we used earlier in the segment um, before you came on, is something that, you know, our regular high handicappers, they don't seem to use. So I want to ask you this question since you, you sort of brilliantly led us into it. How do we develop that championship uh, or champion mindset, if you will? Sure. Well, first, I think um, the, those two points that were made about ownership and overcoming fear are crucial. Um, and I think that there is a point for people, uh, whether they're a high handicapper or they're your weekend golfer or they're the, the guy that really wants to win their, you know, club championship, um, who's blessed with having a, you know, a plus one handicap, right? Uh I think all of the skills, the skills that are involved in the champion mindset can be taught. Um, And and many of them are embracing your challenges or seeing effort really as the key to mastery, uh, persisting in the face of setbacks, which talks about perseverance, Um, and then learning from criticism, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, but really understanding what that criticism is about. And that's really having a really good coach. Uh, and then I always talk about actually feeling inspired by the success of other people. And uh, Carol Dweck has done this work. 
and she's talked through what these two mindsets are, whether it's a fixed mindset that you might have or a champion mindset or a growth mindset. But these qualities are the qualities that when we are talking about what makes a champion, they're present. Uh, and you can look at any one of those champions that you mentioned earlier and really see that this is exactly the things, the ingredients that they have. Uh, and then there's level or varying levels of each of those. But uh, that's how I think when you are trying to teach these or, or allow someone to have this, uh, it's, you're going to see the difference, right, if you're working with a professional versus if you're working with um, a guy that is either even learning the game or somebody who, who plays on the weekends. Uh, but they can all have these qualities, and now it, it, we take those qualities and actually – you know, if they're make if the, if the guy is a professional, it's easy to take these qualities and make them better. Um, and it's that way for everyone. There's a varying level of these things, but these are the ingredients that go with it. Right. And and you know, I think again, I think for a lot of folks out there, they're you know, I'm sure listening tonight uh, are probably thinking, um, you know, I know somebody that kind of fits in that bill. You know, I know somebody. Boy, they've got a fantastic game. And in my mind, they're a champion, but it may not necessarily be the case. And I think sometimes, you know, as we, we both have mentioned, that word sometimes gets thrown around a little bit too much. And, and obviously the mental side of, of the game is, is, is critical. I mean, you can have – I mean, we've seen – I can name you probably 30 players on the PGA that have phenomenal ball-striking abilities, but you never see them in the winner's circle, uh, or certainly not very often. Um, so obviously the mental side of the game uh, is something that, as we mentioned in, in our first part of the show, um, you know, with Jack and Tiger particularly, uh, we're, we're two of the best, if not the best, in the game uh, thus far. So if, if golf is, um, if some percentage, if you will, is mental, then why do we spend so much time as golfers uh, on the physical part of the game how do we go about training? Why don't we train the brain and getting it uh, fit, if you will, to be able to handle situations better on the course? Well, that's really, you know, uh, an age-old question. If we can answer that, I would, I'd be, you know, extremely excited. But I think we have the answer uh, because that's what I talk to people about, uh, the clients that I have. Right. And that's actually really the reason why, I created the playbook because I'll, I'll share with you that a little bit of the story around it is uh, sure. working with a couple mm-hmm. of professional golfers. They uh, one on one golfer, he asked for the notes of what we talked about right after the session. And then I had another golfer who asked for the notes before the session. So we would, I would basically be crafting and these things are, you know, things that I didn't just create or make up the, the day before those sessions. And so there was plenty of research and, and information that I was using and gleaning on with experience. And so I started actually putting together slides, if you will, or notes about what we were talking about. And one of the golfers mentioned to me, he's like, Robert, these are things that all golfers, not just high-level golfers, need. And so because, as we often talk about, I often ask people, you know, you believe that golf, there is a portion or a percentage of golf being mental. It could be 10 to 90 for some. Mm. And what I always right. share with folks is that whatever the percentage is, if you choose not to train that percentage, then you're leaving that much to chance. Right. So a professional golfer is not going to leave 90% of their game to chance. Uh, they don't want to leave 1% of their game to chance. And so that's where the I think the differences are. are. And there's still obviously some stigmas around 
receiving, you know, assistance from a mental skills coach or performance coach that deals with mental uh, mental performance or mental toughness sometimes. And so I think that there's there's still that, um, but there is this understanding I think where um, where I work a lot with getting coaches, PGA professionals, to also see the benefit of having the expert. And, and they know this, but mm-hmm. it's sometimes understanding that you know putting and wedge game and you know full swing and all those things are, are awesome and can help create the champion that we're trying to create. Uh, but then there's always this other piece that can actually be deliberately trained by a professional. And whether it's myself or others out there that do this work, uh, we we know that there is a science behind what we do as well. And when I when and for me professionally, when I'm working with a club professional who's teaching lessons and, and working with an athlete and I'm also working with them, and when we have that team or that relationship, that's really when we start to see uh, exponential growth. Um, oftentimes I'm working with someone alone um, and their coach may or may not know. And then once that relationship happens, there is exponential growth in that player. And um, because I'm not going to be the coach, but I'm going to enhance what the coach is doing because there's only, right. I always tell people, there's 168 hours in the week. You might spend 10 with your coach, might spend two with me. And that's still not a lot of time. <laughs> so we really are trying to hone right. in on those pieces. But uh, I think that that's really where uh, folks just fall a little short on training the brain and, and really working through how to employ uh, somebody like myself to help them, you know, work on their mental game, if it means that much to them or if it's that big of a part of their golf game, which it is for everyone. I play the game, so I know that there is a, a yeah. every piece and part <laughs> of it is a mental mental grind, if you will, sometimes. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Robert. I think a lot of uh, folks out there put too much emphasis on the physical part of the game. Obviously, uh, it is important. You need to be able to, to strike the ball uh, well, but I've seen some players um, that were not the best ball strikers in the world but had a very strong mental approach to the game and could, could you know, certainly win. I mean, I, I look at somebody like Lee Trevino um, as an mm-hmm. example. I mean, Absolutely. when you look at him, he had a very unorthodox-looking swing by today's standards, um, and, you know, he certainly joked around, but there was a mental strength that he had that a lot of people probably didn't realize. He knew what he needed to do. And I, I've always equated this, and I might be wrong, so feel free to – to jump in, you're, you're permitted to, to say that the coast is wrong, so don't feel bad if you do. But I've always looked at it that, um, you know, it's like a filing system, the brain. And I think folks that are better organized with their filing system tend to do better in life in general. And I'll give you an example. You know, when you are faced with different challenges in life and based on the experiences and the knowledge that you've gained, you're able to access that information in order to handle that situation or overcome whatever challenges may come. And I think that people are, that are very unorganized mentally um, just sort of helter-skelter all over the place to find you know, a solution. And I think, in my opinion, I think that's what really differentiates a champion from just uh, somebody that maybe can play well or do well in, in golf is they're able to organize their thoughts in such a way that when they're faced with those different challenges and adversities, and that's why I think Tiger and, and, and Jack were so good. I mean, because there were parts of their game that you could look at, as I mentioned through the earlier in the program, you know, Jack was not the best wedge player, 
Tiger sometimes right. sprayed his tee shots all over, but they were able to access the information within their brain to handle that particular situation to move and advance uh, their position. Is that a fairly accurate? I mean, I've dragged it out a little longer than it needed to be, but is that a fairly accurate or accurate analogy? Do you think? I think so, um, because one of the things what you do with a fouling a fouling system, right, is in your mind you say, well, I need foul that starts with A. You go to the A's, and you leaf through there, and you pull out what you need. And I share this with people all the time. I think that's actually simplifying the game. And you, you talk about those two great champions in Tiger and Jack, and you know, as, I, as well as I know, that if I'm if I'm Tiger Woods and I spray my tee balls all around, well, what I'm practicing, you know, what's happening, right? I'm spraying tee balls all around. Right. So, and maybe maybe in his practice rounds, maybe he doesn't do that. And I, I work with juniors around this all the time. Um, and so, but what we know what Tiger is going to do is he's going to pick that tee ball up and he's going to put it where it actually will end up when he's playing in the tournament, drop right. it, and play the shot from there. And so what you begin to do is you begin to develop, and I talk to people a lot about how do you develop confidence or how do you build it. Well, now we know that when I put the ball in that particular area, I've hit seven, eight, nine, ten shots from over there. And this is the type of shot that mm-hmm. I need to hit from this particular lie or this particular area to get to that portion of the green. And so you can do that. You can create that mindset for yourself, even if you're a recreational golfer, right? There's certain things that you know right yep. offhand where you're going to struggle. And so you go to those areas, if you will, to create a level of confidence. And oftentimes I talk about um, those great champions in, in golf specifically is we typically take the uncontrollables and make them controllable. And so we might see where other people might be like, wow, this is a situation or a circumstance, like you mentioned, where that mental game comes in, we're able to overcome those situations. But those are situations that they had already put themselves into. And so now it's a controlled circumstance. And so um, that's, a, that's, the, that's the shift, I think, sometimes that we uh, have to make for our players, too, is to be able to, if, if we don't, in, you know, uh, hire a, a specialist, then we need to be able to say to ourselves, well, how do I actually put them in these circumstances so where they're able to control the uncontrollable a little bit more or a little bit better? Because then, right, it's not when you're in that circumstance, there's no high level of anxiety. There actually is no fear. It's now it's, this is an opportunity. And, uh, one of your guests mentioned that, right, is that when we fear, how yeah. do we turn that fear into opportunity? So I always call that just the threat opportunity. We've already put ourselves there. It's the fear response. And so um, any athlete that I've worked with in the past, what they don't like when I work with them is this question is, okay, so we're going to talk about failure. And they're like, I don't want to talk about failure. I said, we're going to talk about failure because pretty much in every sport that we do, we're right. it's a failure sport, right? I mean, literally, you talk about golf, you talk about baseball, you talk about football. It doesn't matter. Um, and golf is always yep. funny, and I, I tell this to my juniors all the time, is that if you work with a professional golfer and you even go to the range of a tournament and you sit there and listen to them hit those balls, and they'll tell you if they hit 10 balls, they might not hit, if you will, three perfect balls, right? And so there's still room right. for growth, and, and that for them is a failure. You would take all ten of those shots, right? <laughs> but they know right. what they're looking for because there's a different, you know, right? There's just it's just a different level. So there's there's failure at every level. And so when I talk to athletes about let's talk about our failure response. That's exactly what we're doing. We're really now building that uh, challenge. When those challenges come, we're now able to embrace them because we've already put ourselves 
in those circumstances before. So we talk about failure. Can we place ourselves in failure circumstances? Because now it's not going to be something that's new to us. It's actually just like, oh, cool, I actually had a plan for when I hook it into the woods over there to the right. I have the club. I know what shot I'm going to hit. I've, I've practiced that, right. so let's do it. And then they go and execute it. And so it's not, you know, really double, you know, overthinking. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time that I'm, my job is to help people think about their thinking so that when they're out there, they just trust their training. And that's the keys. Um, you know, I don't want people necessarily thinking on the golf course, but we're going to think our way about right. the golf course and even a little bit on it prior to doing it. So that way we're just trusting the training now at that point. And that's what separates a lot of the athletes that we work with, especially on the golf course. Yeah, and I think what happens too, Robert, with with our champions is I think there comes a point in time where I mean they're always learning. This is the interesting thing, you know. Even Tiger has talked about even when he's been at the highest level of his game at times, and he says, you know, I'm always learning. I'm always, you know, evolving, if you will. Um, you know, you're never going to master um, 100% anything that you do. There's always going to be opportunities for for learning and growth. Uh, because it's never changing uh, uh, circumstance. There's never going to be one uh, uh, shot that's going to be exactly the same. They're certainly similar, but not exactly the same. And it's interesting you mentioned that about the range, because I remember, you know, I've been to a few events over the years, and I remember one time watching Freddie Couples uh, when he was warming up, and, uh, you know, he did the same thing, you know, hit about uh, eight to ten shots, and every single one of them, in my eye anyways, went, you know, beautifully the same way, just, you know, sort of gingerly dropped on, on the, the, uh, the green that was out in the, in the um, uh, driving range. And I heard him turn to his caddy at the time, Joe, and he said, he said, that last one wasn't too good. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I said, it was exactly the same <laughs> as the you know, eight or nine that you hit before that. But again, they know, again, they're playing at a different level than many of our amateurs. And I think there becomes a, a point, too, that because, you know, you talked about, you mentioned, you know, when we were talking about the filing um, you know, they're beyond going through the ABCs and, and pulling out a file and, and reading it, if you will. It becomes instinct. Um, their confidence level right. gets to a point where instinctively they know exactly which file folder to pull open at any given time. And, um, and, and you mentioned that here in, in the example you gave. So what specifically, um, Robert, do you think we can do to train our mental side? What can we do? I mean, we hear... Uh, you know, it's not like you go out there and you're hitting balls and, and uh, we, can, we can do things to train our physical side, but what do we do to train our mental side? What are some uh, examples that you could give us? Sure. Um, you know, one, as I mentioned earlier, about placing our balls in positions and places where we're actually going to uh, hit them from when we're playing in competition specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, another drill that I, I thoroughly enjoy working with uh, my athletes around, and it's one I did with a, a junior just yesterday, was knowing how far your clubs go, right? It seems so basic. It mm-hmm. seems so simple. Right. Um, right. But for all golfers, uh, that's something that they're constantly working at. And, you know, they, they can hit certain shots, different yardages. But I think, again, what we're trying to get people to do is to be able to make a very conscious choice, very deliberate, very quick, and feel very confident in the choices that they're making. And so oftentimes people will – give me those ranges of where they hit their clubs kind of. And um, I always work with them around, well, let's actually figure it out. And so the only way to do that, I tell people really is on the golf course. 
And so it's hard on the range, right. uh, whether, you know, whether it's because of the types of balls that you have or the targets that you have, uh, the elevation sometimes, the ground that's out there. I mean, those are really challenging circumstances. And so anytime that someone can get on the golf course and drop five, six, seven balls at a particular yardage and figure out like, wow, uh, that eight iron really doesn't go 180. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then they realize, right. well, that's right. actually my, you know, driving iron or whatever it might be. And so I think then they right. begin that the light really turns on. And that's one way really to work on that mindset uh, and really to start working on that mental game. And then just recognizing, I think, when we, the, the easiest way is to, to acknowledge not only is there a percentage of my game that's actually mental, but I often really talk through about how do you develop confidence and where does that actually even come from? And you talked a little bit earlier too about the difference between confidence versus arrogance. And I thought that was great. And right. realizing, you know, that confidence in and of itself, a lot of people don't believe that it's something that you can build. Uh, there is this desire and thought that, well, maybe it's a, a gift or a talent that we have. And I think there's a point to that, but you know, there is absolutely a way in which we build that because the things that we think, those are the things that actually drive our feelings and our emotions and the things that we, our physical state. So they're the consequence driver. So what I always tell people is that if we can actually control a little bit of the things that we think, which we have control over, then we know that we're going to be able to get a certain outcome. And so that's, you know, once we, we start to at least bring that into some realization, I call it just that you know, basic self-awareness, then, then now we can actually begin working on the mental side of things and really understanding, I think, for people that thoughts are things that I can control. And if I can actually control those, then let me actually be proactive in the things that I'm going to think. Uh, and so that's the first step to whenever I'm working with particularly a golfer, um, because once people understand that if, if I can, if I can control the things that I think, yes. And those things that you think, you know, they, they're absolutely a direct reflection on how you feel and what you do. And so since we know that right. and we, we can understand that, then once we, we make that commitment to changing what we think, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, like, first piece. You know, that's like, okay, wow, now we're working on the percentage that we need to be working on. Um, so once we realize that thoughts absolutely matter, now we're on to something. And I think that's the kind of first steps that I, I walk people through uh, and then even walking through that with, you know, teaching pros to make sure that they're teaching that to their, to their students um, that they're working with, because that's the, that's the first key to having a strong mental game is actually knowing that the things that I think I can, I control and that they matter and I can actually create thoughts that are going to actually get me to a certain result. You know, and, and you, you kind of touched on this without actually coming out right out and saying it, but emotions obviously are a big um, factor as well you know we we see a lot of players um, even top level players that uh, when their emotions get out of check um, their game will actually start to um, falter a little bit um, we've seen it over the years where a player's you know leading a tournament something will happen um, and mentally you know they will almost derail their entire fall game apart. I mean I've seen it Right, exactly. And so obviously, you know, through what you've been working on over the years, um, you know, nearly two decades, that's a factor, too, that you touch on, I'm sure, quite a bit with, with players and, and your, your, uh, particularly your junior athletes, because they're still working with developing minds that, that their um, emotions 
play a key role as well, correct? Absolutely. And some of those players on, on tour were, <laughs> that we see that are emotional, uh, when I think, <laughs> think about it, I always tell people, I said, well, how old really is that guy? <laughs> He's 22. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's like, oh, makes sense, right? So there's still that, you right, know, right. that brain is still developing for males specifically all the way through to about 25 years old, right? That, that prefrontal cortex, I won't get too sciencey on the show, but that yeah. prefrontal cortex is still developing, and that's that executive decision-making process. And so we're not, you know, really able to manage those emotions as well as we would like uh, until that's fully developed. But one of the pieces, particularly working with emotion, is just for, for a kid to understand, I call it the expectation factor. And uh, it was mentioned earlier in your show, too, and I, I think that, you know, speaking on that one more time is very important because sure. we're not comparing ourselves to the right people. So I often tell a junior, who are you actually comparing yourself to? And I'll, I'll just kind of throw throw this one out there because I think it's a it's one that I talk a lot about, and it's really about just greens and regulation. Um, you know, yep. you may know this number for because you do this for for a living, right? But you ask someone, even a junior who's high level junior AJGA or IJGA guy, you know, what what is the the percentage of greens and regulations that the tour pro is actually hitting and they're they're usually way off, and I remind them that it's about sixty five percent and around. Right. And they're like, "Huh?" I'm like, "Yes." So for you to get angry yep. that you miss the green, um, yep. let's kind of think about our expectations. And so really, what I do with emotions, emotions are usually happening when someone's emotionally out of control. It's because their expectations are not in line with their ability. And so we get that to be super aligned, and then the emotionality of the player goes away. Uh, they're still fiery, or they're still where they need to be, but now they're fiery for the right reason. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I do a lot with, uh, and even even my top level uh, golfers, even tour players as well. Same concept. They want to, you know, I, I always talk to them about birdie opportunities and what that looks like for them, and uh, is that a 15 foot and less putt? Or is that actually hitting the grid on your green sheet where you want to go, right? You'd rather take a 27-footer right. versus a 5-footer downhill with a little curl to it. Absolutely. And, then, you know, so there's some of those pieces. And we still talk about those because I think it's super critical uh, to make sure that our emotions are in line with our ability. And when we can get someone to understand that and get them to actually believe that, now we're on to something huge because – um, I mean, if 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 you tell someone that they're going to hit 12 out of 18 greens in regulation, they're thinking, well, that's not enough. Oh, well, that's enough for a tour player, yep. and that's why they work on their chipping, putting, short. Yeah. Now we know right. why it's so important. They're <laughs> uh, so like, oh yeah, right. I get it, because I always tell them, you're not. You, what TV shows you is everyone hitting the green right. really close. It's kind of a delay, you know. I try to explain that to folks. Uh, and sure. you, you go to a tournament and you watch a guy, just take a guy, walk, walk with, walk the whole way, walk the whole round. And you'll see him getting up and down, managing his golf game, mm-hmm. uh, missing shots. Um, so it becomes an understanding of the expectation of what, who we are as a golfer. Uh, and that, you know, that obviously flows into other areas of our lives, but really understanding what our expectations are with regards to our ability. Yeah, you know, you you raise a very interesting point. You actually 
um, took the thought right out of my mind, and that was uh, about the events and, and really what the reality of the stats are, you know, because when, when you hear the stats or you look at the stats, and it's kind of puzzling to, to somebody, um, you know, a junior golfer, because it's thinking, wow, I, you know, I would have thought, you know, so-and-so would have, you know, been on the green more than that, because that's what I always see on TV, but you're right, you know, you don't see a lot of the shots in between, so I always tell um, you know, players or, or golfers that I'm working with, I always say to them, you know, if you've got an event, uh, you know, within reasonable proximity of where you're living, which they're pretty much everywhere now across the, the nation, um, go to a live event. You know, it's great to watch it on TV, but you're not going to learn as much watching them on TV as you are actually going to the event because you're going to get a reality check when you see that these guys miss shots too. Shots that, you know, um, you might think, wow, I can't believe so-and-so missed that shot. But the truth of the matter is they're human, just like you are. Um, and there's going to be situations they're going to, you know, snap hook it, not very often, but they're going to hit it into the woods or they're going to hit it into, you know, some, some gnarly looking rough over there or overshoot the green or hit it in a, in a deep into a bunker. So they hit some of these same shots that we might hit. It's just that they know um, based on the percentage of their success that they can get up and down from. And, and that's, again, going back to the champion mindset, you know, a, a player like Tiger, you know, again, I talked about earlier, uh, I think it was the Buick Open, as I mentioned, you know, he, yeah. he uh, you know, fan, yeah, he fanned it out. And this was early in his career. You know, he fanned it out into into the, the rough and, and it was pretty, you know, uh, ugly looking. And he had some big trees in front of him and he just hit a nice big, you know, power fade and ended up carving it up onto the uh, onto the green. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was about 10 feet from the hole. And people were just awe and, and ooh, and, and Tiger just walked up there like it was nothing. And But again, he knew in his mind what he was able to do. Uh, and again, that's obviously the confidence level that, that comes from working, with, you know, years and years and years on your game. But um, But that's something that I always try to encourage people to do is to go to a live event and just sort of watch these guys and see what really goes on because again obviously in the wonderful world of media and editing uh you're not seeing occasionally you see a bad shot but it's usually if it's a leader that's you know dropping a stroke or two or something so let me ask you this robert you know speaking of strokes you know there's been a a a myriad of theories over the last several decades as to why golfers handicaps are not going down so you know, we've got all the swing gurus, if you will, coming out and saying, well, they need to do this and they need to do that. And they're always talking about the physical part of the game. Do you think in your mind that a lot of uh, changes mentally in the way that players approach the game and think about the game and how they navigate mentally around the golf course would be a better tool to have than just trying to, you know, hit the ball perfect every time? Well, in the game of golf, uh, <laughs> If you hit it really well, uh, and, you know, I always say that if really well is still pretty poor, but it gets you down the fairway, right. you know, onto the green, uh, that is really good stuff. And, yes, there are clubs that you can buy. There are swing aids. There's podcasts. There's lots of things. And I right. often in talking with what it is that I do specifically – not just because I do this for a living, but now I'm doing this for a living and actually helping people understand that 
this is exactly what it is that they're looking for. And that's really why I'm able to see these big swing and slash stroke changes in their game is the mentality, a lot of mm-hmm. golf course management sometimes. We talk about that. Um, but really being right. able to understand how the brain works. Again, the reason why, if you think about it, uh, if if this is a percentage of the game, 90% for some, 80, 10, it doesn't really matter what the percentage is. But if there's a percentage of this game, and for most people, they'll, they always give me a very high number. So all we're working on, let's just, we'll use a, an easy one, right? We'll say that some people say it's about 75% mental. Right. So that means that we're spending 100% of our time on 25% of our game. There's no reason yep. not to think that we're not going to score better, um, even if we can hit the ball better for that 25%. There's still going to be this other, se- you know, there's this other 75% of your golf game that you're not growing, and uh, no champion will ever sit here on any call or any any conversation and say that they are willing to not train whatever percentage that is. It will never leave that to chance. And I think that's the difference. Um, and so just as you mentioned, there's, there's actually a, a golf pro here that I work with. Uh, and he, he actually did a testimonial for me and said, it's, you should go see Robert. It's way better than buying a new club. And I'm thinking, really? Do you think so? Like in my mind, I'm, I'm actually thinking, well, I might want that TS, you know, I, I might want this you know, M5 right. or M6, I, it, it will go a little further. I mean, like, yeah, but it's also going to go a little further into <laughs> trouble, uh, right, unless you right. know what to do when you get right. there. Uh, so right. it's kind of like I never really thought of it that way. Um, but, yes, when you work on this particular piece of your game, it's, it's almost a guarantee that um, you're going to lose strokes to your golf game. And I, I don't think I've worked with anyone that has – their handicap has increased. I, I might want to triple check before I say it necessarily, but I'm pretty confident that that has not been the case. I think there's some pieces sometimes in the beginning where we are thinking a lot more because we're working on the mental game uh, where you might not play as well. Uh, but then once you start getting this in motion and it becomes trusting the training, uh, then you're, you're back where you need to be and actually improving. And so even with my tour pros, there's, there's scoring averages have decreased and which is, amazing to think at that high of a yep. level that we can get somebody to go from a, a 70.9 to a 70.1 or a 70.2. Um, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of regular golfers don't, might not understand <laughs> of how, how much right. of an improvement that really is, but that is huge at that level of golf. Uh, that's absolutely yes. making more cuts and making more money um, when we can average that kind of score throughout four rounds of golf. So, uh, just to see that because there's this intentionality on working on the mental side of the game, I think is if people continue to kind of work through this, then you will absolutely see a decrease in scores. And, and it's just, um, you know, it's just a numbers game for me. If if there's a percentage of what it is that you're doing um, <laughs> that you're not working on, then you're just not going to get as good as you want to get and so folks who have decided that they want to become good to great they really they they get on board and make it happen yeah and and that's a that's a great point you know we see time and time again um every season you know as they roll out the new equipment down the pga merchandising show in january um you know we see all these people just sort of salivating over the new equipment and, uh, and then, you know, once it hits the, the, the public, you know, they're all excited about the new drivers or the new wedges or the new putters. And there's certainly some great products, don't get me wrong, or training aids. 
But the truth of the matter is, despite all of the uh, technological changes, we're still seeing handicaps staying pretty much consistent uh, for the last several decades. And I think a lot of it is, and this is what's added to the frustration for so many players. So I want to ask you sort of this final question, and this is about yourself, Robert, because you mentioned that you know you got into golf a, a little bit unorthodox compared to, to some out there. Um, how is understanding or having a better understanding than, say, most on the mental side of the game, how has it helped your game? What are some things that you've noticed about your own game um, that's helped you overcome some of the challenges that you've had to face? Uh, great question. Um, it's kind of uh, self-diagnosing yourself. Uh, so my own web right. right, sometimes. Uh, but particularly for mm-hmm. my golf game, uh, I wish I played more. Uh, I am a father of four kids. Two are golfers. One wow. will be a 12 tomorrow. And I have a nine-year-old son. And oh. so they, they're, you know, heavily involved in everything called golf. You name a tour, they do yep. it. Or they're, they're, they're in it. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I, I'm a caddy for a lot of times, right? Which is which is also for my work, um, but for my golf game specifically, right. it really does help me uh, manage getting around the golf course. Um, you know, I, I recognize that I hit the ball quite a long way, uh, and so that's right. helpful. But it's also uh, an easy way for me to recognize that when I don't get enough practice in, that me and Mr. Driver are gonna, you know, we're not gonna spend as much time on the golf course right. together when we're playing around, right? Uh, so, so right. <laughs> because again, it's, it's about what my expectations are. So, um, you know, I, I know what I play to and I, I can, I can beat that on a, when I'm, when I'm really going, but I really use every skill that I teach other people to help myself, uh, because it's an emotional game. I'm an athlete, uh, by the yep. way. So, uh, <laughs> I want yep. to do well in everything that I do. Uh, and golf is one of those very humbling sports where you have to recognize that it requires a lot of time. Uh, and definitely there are some talented people out there to be able to pull off certain shots. And so um, I'm a constant reminder of saying to myself that a number is the only thing going on the scorecard. There are no pictures. There's no descriptions of how I got that number. If I take a, a seven iron off of par five and hit another seven iron and hit another seven iron and I make birdie, no one's going to ask. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a four on the card. Um, you know, so That's right. I remind my son of that all the time, actually. He's one of the, he's that one. He's like, did you just see how pretty that shot was? Yeah. I started it off on the right-hand side there really nice, and it just fell right on in there like a feather. And I'm like, yep, but you three-putted. <laughs> and your sister, right. she it up there, got on there in three, one-putted. She's got the same score that you got. Talk to me about that, right? Right. So, um, but I understand yeah. that there's, you know, those pieces to it, and we all, each one of them has their own uh, wonderful areas that we can consistently work around. But um, so for me personally, that's exactly uh, how I use this, uh, these skill sets that I have for myself or others, but I really use it to, to play really uh, stress-free golf. I mean, that's really what yeah, I do. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the that's the key. I probably should I probably should have rephrased the question had I known that you had four children is how has it helped your caddying ability as opposed to your golf game? Um no, we're because talking. obviously you you're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's interesting because it, and it was something just to go back a little bit to what you talked about earlier as we we get ready to wrap up here. Unfortunately, I I, I could talk for another hour, but um you know, talk about the developing brain and you know i think about this and i've heard this expression many times you it's probably not the nicest one but um you know at a certain age we're kind of young and dumb 
you know, we just don't get it. We don't understand certain things. And as we develop and our brain starts to develop, things start to make a little bit more sense. And, you know, I, I think in golf, you know, some of these young players have got some, literally some God-given talent. I mean, they can hit the ball a mile. They've got a lot of strength and they got, but they just don't know how to, to package it all together and put it together and, and, and put it in its proper place. And I think this is really where somebody like yourself can come along and say, okay, here, you've got some great talent here. You can, you can work the ball. You can do this and do that. But there's areas of your game that you're lacking in. And it's, as you said earlier, in the six inches between your ears. Um, so really you can help them unpack their thoughts a little bit and organize them in a better way that's going to bear some fruit down the road. And I think that's pretty much what you're trying to do, correct? Absolutely. I really want, uh, especially the golfers that I work with, when especially we're talking about juniors specifically, is that I think there is a wonderful thing called information overload, right? Uh, they have yeah. a lot of technology, a lot of information, and they're not, uh, their brain is not really ready for all of those details. Uh, and so we really uh, try to help them understand exactly what they do very well, make them really confident. Because with all that information, it makes you doubt um, because you don't know exactly where to put it in that fouling system yet. And so that's the difference, yep. right? And we got a very talented kid, and they can do exactly like you mentioned. I mean, I, I talked to a kid just yesterday. I mean, he's 16 years old. He bombs it out there at 330. I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty awesome stuff. Uh, but we're still struggling to make par. So well, let's figure out what we're doing, you know. And then it's always about the mentality or the game planning or the mindset that the kid has when they're out there. And so I really come alongside folks along that journey to really help them develop the mindset of a champion so that they can perform to their ability and so that we can actually start seeing their potential coming more and more into reality for them. And so I think that's a, a really cool thing that we're that I'm able to do when I'm working with athletes. Yeah, and it gives you a great – you know, personal satisfaction as well. I mean, as a, as a swing coach, if you will, uh, or teaching professional for me, obviously, you know, it's great to see them understanding the concepts of, of better ball striking and things like that. And obviously I don't get into the same, I mean, I, I do a little bit, but obviously not to the level that you do uh, in, in your side of the game, but I think that there's, they're integral together. I mean, obviously you want to be able to, to hit the ball well, and that's great but then there's other parts of the game as well that are equally important or more important in some ways. And I think that's where you need somebody like yourself. Um, so Robert, I want to, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for, for joining me. It's been a, a really great uh, interview. I've loved having you on the show and uh, Robert, uh, just uh, read you a little bit more about uh, Robert here, my very special guest. So as he mentioned, he played uh, some college football at the university of Pittsburgh uh, he's also a member of the North American Society for Psychology of Sport and uh, Physical Activity, also the Association for the Advancement of Applied Sports Psychology and American Counseling Association. He's a licensed uh, clinical professional counselor in the states of Maryland and Georgia, and also a national certified uh, counselor granted by the National Board of Certified Counselors. Um, Robert, how can the folks reach out to you, and not just the, the regular folks out there playing the game, but maybe even some of my fellow coaches and teach professionals that maybe uh, might want to uh, work with you and, and get to your help on uh, some of the champions that they're working with. How can they go about reaching you? What's the best way to do it? Sure. There's uh, two easy ways. One is uh, email, right? My, my email address is robert at elite minds, llc.com. 
uh, and my website. Uh, you can get to me that way as well and actually take a look at the playbook that I'm working through, and that's at www.elitemindsllc.com. So those are the two easiest ways, and I was laughing earlier because John mentioned that he answers his phone, and I do yeah. as well. So. Um, <laughs> I haven't got, gotten to that part where someone else is. If someone else is my phone, it's one of my kids. So, um, yeah. yes, that's the easiest ways to catch me. Yeah, got to love a man that answers his own phone. Well, Robert, thank you again for joining me on, on Golf Talk Live. I'd love to have you uh, come back again uh, anytime you want. Uh, we'll get into even some more discussion, and, and uh, maybe we can uh, do another show uh, maybe a little bit later on the season, maybe get one of your students to – to join on here and, and talk about some of their journey, if you will, and, and uh, some of the ways that you've helped to impact their, their uh, abilities and that. So uh, I'd love to have you come back on. It's been, uh, been fun. Oh, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. What a blessing. And absolutely. I look forward to doing it again, Ted. All right. Appreciate it. Robert, you have a, a great weekend and uh, much continued success. And I look forward to having you uh, join me again here on Golf Talk Live. All right, that was my very special guest, Robert Price, uh, the owner of Elite Minds LLC. Uh, very interesting guest, a lot of uh, great information, and, and sort of followed in uh, to what, as I mentioned earlier, our discussion was on the Coach's Corner panel with John Hughes and Pete Buchanan. Thank you guys, as always, for doing a fantastic job. I appreciate you uh, coming on the panel, and uh, again, thank you, Robert, uh, for uh, join me as well on the interview segment here. Uh, again, Robert uh, Price, the owner of Elite Minds LLC. So go to EliteMindsLLC.com and get all of uh, Robert's contact information there. If you want to reach out to him, uh, you can do so there. Uh, just a, a, a final quick reminder, uh, don't forget to go to GolfSwing.com uh, after the show and check out their online video academy. You can sign up, uh, use promo code GOLFTALKLIVE and get up to 50% savings off the regular subscription price. It's a great deal. They've got uh, a lot of fantastic golf uh, teach professionals and coaches on there with some great tips and training, uh, all kinds of uh, literally thousands of videos on there. So uh, go to golfswing.com, enter promo code at checkout, uh, Golf Talk Live for all the listeners of the program, and get a special discount of up to 50% off the regular subscription price. It's well worth it. Um, also, a final reminder, just to let everybody know, again, uh, I'm going to be on holiday next week, so there will not be a Women of Golf uh, show uh, on Tuesday morning and or Golf Talk Live next Thursday, uh, but I will be returning for both shows the following week. So on that note, again, thank you very much to my special guest tonight and also my sponsor, GolfSwing.com, and uh, God bless everybody, and I look forward to joining me next time on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.